Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Jesus, would you look who it is long time now, see? The outlet. Still working for the car bomb. That was the young fella. Still acting the bollocks. That's gas. Give us a shatty alone. Oh, you will, yeah. You're some gobble. He's bleeding massive. Ah, there. He's your man. Giaquich, Conisatatu Bukali, August Kalini, how are you getting on? This is the Tis Yourself podcast and this is season four, episode two. My name is Nicola Barden and I host this little podcast all the way over here in Dublin. And if you are listening anywhere around the world, welcome. And if it's your first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. And it's really cool to have you here. So I'll just kick off with a little thank you to everyone who downloaded last week's kickoff episode. We've kind of had a theme for some reason. I've had a theme on this season, on these podcast seasons, that I've had an American guest to either start the season or end the season. And we've had amazing guests like Jerry O'Connell, um, who you'll know from Stand By Me and he's on The Talk and all these other stuff. Um, we had uh, or Jay Mitty from Breaking Bad. Um, we had Tom Lenk from... Buffy. He was Andrew for all my fellow Buffy obsessives out there. And then this year we decided to kick off with another amazing American guest and that was the fab, the hilarious, the gas crack Rob Maschio who plays the Todd from Scrubs. And it was so cool seeing so many people like from around the world listening to this episode. So like you would think, you know, obviously being an Irish podcast, we get a lot of our listens here. I get a lot of my listens here in Ireland and a lot in the UK and the States. So, you know, fair enough. Uh, we got a lot from Australia, there was Spain, Belgium, Canada, the Czech Republic, Finland, Germany, Greece, India, Italy, Latvia, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Philippines, Puerto Rico, Sweden, Switzerland, the Cayman Islands and Singapore. And that's just in the first few days. And that was incredible. And then on my Instagram, I put up a clip of Rob from the episode. And at last count, it was over 21,000 views on Reels. Um, one of the guys, the Irish guys who actually had helped Rob around when he was in Dublin, actually commented underneath it. It was just like this small world of people connecting and people finding this clip and everything. So I was really, really grateful. Being a podcaster, it's very hard. It's it's hard work. It's hard getting the guests. It's hard editing it. It's hard promoting it. Promoting it is the worst, lads. I'm absolutely telling you. I do all the all, all the other stuff over and over again. If I didn't have to promote it once, um, when you're a small podcast, you have to promote it a lot because if obviously if I had a huge following on you know Twitter, or Instagram, you wouldn't have to do any of that. Um, so that's why you know every week the likes of you know Tommy and Hector and Darren and them they don't have to do a lot of promo because people just know about it and follow it so if you are a fan of this episode if this is your first time if you've been listening loads of times please do go and subscribe on iTunes um, on Google Podcasts or follow on Spotify 
just means that every time that a new episode comes out it'll just come up on your um, new episodes line in your uh, in your feed so you know and then you, if it is your first time we've loads we've three seasons for you to catch up on lads please come along and joy I've been really excited about the amount of people that have listened to other episodes as well as Rob's uh, over the last week so you've made a little Irish girl sitting in her bedroom recording this on her own very very happy let me tell you um, now Never mind all that. Uh, that's all the dealing and begging done about the like, subscribe, the usual crack that you get from all your podcasts. Um, We're going to move on to today's guest. So my guest today is an Irish sports hero, an Olympian medalist, uh, a boxer, someone who, you know, has represented North and South of Ireland. He now lives in Las Vegas, um, where he still, you know, flies the flag and he... Is an incredible ambassador for this country, but also he has met, you know, the greats of the greats over there. And he is really excited to hopefully come home and see our girl, Katie Taylor, fighting in Croke Park next year. Fingers crossed that gets the go ahead. I do have a little trigger warning on this one here for this episode. So we do talk um, a bit about suicide, suicidal ideation, mental health and depression. And that comes towards the end of the episode. So if you want to listen for a while and then you want to turn off at that that's obviously you know that's up to yourself um, I do have to just warn you that that is discussed in this episode Wayne gets very very um, honest and brave and open about some stuff he has been through so I just wanted to warn anyone who maybe doesn't want to isn't maybe isn't ready to hear something like that or you know doesn't want to hear something like that so just a warning that that will be coming towards the end of the episode Anyway, I am not going to talk to you much longer because I think this man earned the right to have your respect, to have your ears. I'm still a nobody, so don't worry about me. But this guy, this guy's a hero. And I think, you know, by the end of this, he'll be calling for, you know, a national ceremony for this man. I'm telling you. Anyway, this is the legend Wayne McCullough here on the Tis Yourself podcast. I suppose we'll get started with everybody, you know, in Ireland knows who you are. Um, but I suppose was boxing always as a kid what you wanted to do? Was it how did it kind of come into your life? No, my, my two older brothers were boxers. One one's six years older, one's five years older. And I remember that my brother, my oldest brother came in with a tro- little small trophy about this size. <laughs> I was I was only seven years older than and I'm like, I want one of them as well. And I just went to the gym. Was just around the corner from where I lived in, in Belfast, West Belfast, and say I did football every day. Like everybody plays football in the street. I did like in school. I was like trust going to be runner and I played rugby. And um, but boxing was the only sport that I was actually better at. You know, it was I was I was good at football, but it wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> but boxing was like that one-on-one sport where I just I stayed at it from seven, eight, nine, ten years old, eleven years old, twelve. By the time I was twelve, I probably had over about a hundred fights with them. But wow. I say that the reason why I went is because my, my two brothers did it and I just went along with Emmons. And then, as I say, the gym was just, I say, just around the corner. So it was handy for me. And um, it was, I say, I was, I was good at boxing. So I just stuck at it. <laughs> and I bet you because as well, if you two older brothers who are good at boxing, you want to be able to keep up with them if they decide to use you as target practice. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they, they were only a year apart, five and six years older. So they, they had each other to fight with. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, I was, I had two older brothers, two older sisters and two younger sisters. I was like the odd man out. I, had, I was the one on my own. <laughs> oh, the one in the middle being like, someone play with me. I was the black sheep of the family. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to become a champion. I'm going to do this. No, when I started off, you know, I did it for fun. You know what I mean? I wanted the trophy. Mm. And then 11 years old, I won my first championship, the boys clubs of, of Northern Ireland. And then I, I went on to win the juveniles, all Ireland's and when I was 14, right through till I left when I was 22. I won the, the juniors, seniors all through the years. And of course, you know, at 15 was it, I knew, I knew at 15, I told my friends, I used to go run to the mountains like the, in Belfast. Everybody thought it was crazy. I was out running cold mornings and, you know, just every day I train, 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 train. And um, a lot of my friends thought I was, I was nuts, but I, they seen the, the work I was putting in. I was putting, I was making the foundation first before I, I, I knew I wanted to get here, but I had to build the foundation to get there. And at 15, I told people I was going to be WBC world champion. And that's about it. I see, I got Muhammad Ali on the wall here, the belt of Muhammad Ali wall, the green and gold belt. And um, not disrespect many belts, but I just seen that belt on Muhammad Ali and I thought, mm. I'm going to get one of them. And I told people I, I was going to win the WBC belt when I was older. And I was a 15 and I thought it was nuts, but <laughs> I, I was, my driving force was working out, working out. And I, you know, I was always on the Irish team, I was always known the guy who just worked it harder and harder and harder. And I just thought, I may not have the best skill, but but if I work out harder, maybe I'll, I'll make up for the difference. And and it did make up for the difference. <laughs> what was it like being on the Ireland team, you know, coming from Belfast at that time? I suppose it was around the 80s, you know, um, being the lad from Belfast, being on the Irish team. Was it, were like, was that okay? Were there people at home that gave you stick? What was it like? No, well, everybody knows they carried the flag in the, in the Olympics in 88. I was mm. just, I was 17 when I qualified for the Olympics that year. Just won the seniors, and they weren't going to send me to the Olympics, but because it was my first international competition mm. as a senior. But I knocked out the Irish champion. Then they put, they put me back in with it when I knocked them out again, <laughs> and then they put me in with um, a Cuban, a Turgetti, a legend, Hall of Famer boxer who passed away. I fought him as well, and a Scottish kid. I knocked I knocked them all out. I had like twelve knockouts in a row. I weighed I weighed forty eight kilos. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Knocking a Cuban out, a Canadian out, a, a Scottish guy, a, and the national champion twice, and knocked him out. And they still weren't going to send me the Olympics, but I had the best record probably of anybody ever mm. at, the, at the senior level. So they sent me to the Olympics, and then, of course, I was the youngest member of the team. And no, going for Ireland, right? My neighborhood, um, there was a guy in our gym called David Armour. He was he was like British professional champion back in the day, and um, he fought he fought in the Olympics for. Around as well, so where my neighborhood was a like like a, a loyalist Protestant area, the Shanker Road, and but no, when I came back from the Olympics after I carried the flag in '88, um, they actually had a celebration for me. Wow! A lot of, a lot of people have said since then that there was trouble this, that, and the other. Well, I'm the one who carried the flag. I'm the one who came home, and I'm the one who nothing happened to. You know, because so, <laughs> people, I always said it was for sport, not not politics. I carried the flag for sport. I'm representing Ireland and um, I'm proud of it. Mm. And I did that and never came across any trouble. Well, now, who was going to fight with you? You'd knocked out 12 people and you were only 17. I'm only 19. 
all these lads are like, hey, listen, I've got a problem with it, but I'm not saying anything to that lad. <laughs> no, but the funny thing is my, a lot of my friends I grew up with, you know, I know what they do for a living. You know what I mean? Mm. And um, no problems at all. When I, you know, respect when I'm at home and nobody had any problems at all. Wow. You know, I'm representing country north and south and, and 88, I didn't get a medal in 88, 92 is when I got the medal. And then there was more celebrations. That's amazing for the time that it was, you know, considering, um, you know, Belfast was, you know, like obviously I didn't grow up there and you would have known yourself what it was like at that time to, to have a sport that brought people together is incredible. Yeah, well, boxing, you know, I was born nine, I was born in the 7th, the 7th, 70, all 7th, 1970. <laughs> and the trouble started in 69. But during the late 70s, 80s and 90s, it was pretty rough in Belfast. But boxing always crossed divides. You know, I've got so many friends from, they were Catholics right through from the 80s, 90s, right through. You know, they came to my home, I went to their home, never any trouble. And then when you went to boxing venues, Falls Road, they came to the Shango Road, and there was never any problems at all. Boxing always crossed the divide, and you always had that family, you know, Protestant Catholics together and, and say, never had any trouble whatsoever. That's amazing. It's, it's amazing how they do it. It's amazing how they do it. Even the fans. You know, when you go to the fights, there was never any bitterness there either. Wow. I mean, it was pretty, pretty quiet. Yeah, if you considered football matches, wouldn't have been the same if you'd taken up football. <laughs> football, but I think there's, you know, once they, they start singing and get the liquor into them. But I say soccer fans are a bit different from boxing fans. I mean, a lot of soccer fans came to my fights and they behaved themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they're like, he would kick my ass if I even try and say something out of place. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully they were thinking like that because I say I'm only a little small man. So <laughs> <laughs> I often wonder, like with boxers, do lads, you know, see you out, you know, on a night out or anything like that and think that they're like, you know, because they're a bit hardy, like I could take them because they have that attitude, you know? Yes. 100%. <laughs> I was at a few nightclubs in Belfast before I left to come here and, you know, I walked in the bathroom and maybe heard somebody talking about me because I had the, the Commonwealth medal, the Olympic medal. Mm. So you're sort of pretty popular even before you turn professional and you get people talking about you and they've no, like they, have no, they don't even know you. Mm. And I've like bigger guys and stuff, but I've, I remember holding somebody up against the wall in the toilet. I just said, what are you talking about? I didn't hit them. Never, never, never hit them. I would never hit them. And, um, you know, on the streets, I've always been picked on, you know, I've been called, I'm five foot seven. I've been called a little short ass. And call a little, you know, your midget. I'm like, seriously? And it's like, I just say, this little short man can knock you out. Yeah. <laughs> but I say, I, I've always afforded fights if I had to. I mean, I've only been maybe one or two fights, really. And it didn't last long. It lasted like one second. You know, it was over before they knew it. You know what I mean? So <laughs> when, you know, when, you, when you know how to punch and hold, control and hold yourself, it's when guys come in the street, they're, they're punching like this. But if I'm, mm. if I'm in control, I know where to hit you. I know how to move out of the way and say, but I, never, I always avoided fights, street fights and stuff like that. And, and to say, but I was, you hit the nail on the head. I was always picked on because I'm small, you know? Yeah. And so you didn't win in 88 when you went to the Olympics. Like, what was that like for you after you'd fought so hard to get there and then you didn't actually come home with anything? Were you like level-headed about it or were you a bit like pissed? No, because going to the Olympics to say it was, I was just, just turned 18. Now. The Olympics mm. were like September, October that year, later in the year, usually like June, July. And um, you know, get, just getting the Olympics for me was just, that was my first international competition going to the Seoul Korea. And I say it was, 
just to get there, the experience, just build up the experience. As I say, Michael Cruyff, who won the gold, he was he was there as well. He was he was a couple of years older than me. And he had been on international trips and stuff. I'd never been on an international trip with this, the senior team. But just just being there and, and getting the experience. I won my first fight. I got a bye, then I won my first second my the second round, I won that. And then I lost in the like the last sixteen or something. My next fight would have been for fighting for a medal, but I didn't get that far. But the experience I picked up, and I say I wasn't disappointed. It was, I wanted the medal, of course, but mm. I wasn't disappointed. But I knew the next four years, going to the Olympics four years later, the experience I'll get in the four years will be priceless, and um, that's I work towards that. It's amazing how people watch the Olympics every time it's on. Every four years, it's we're obsessed with it. We're like suddenly watching sports we've never watched before. You know everything. People don't see that it is a four-year journey. Like they see. They might think the last year, you know, you're stepping up your game, but like it is from the minute the last one ends, right? You get maybe a few weeks off and then it's right back down to training. What did we do wrong? Let's look at it this way. Like it's incredible to have to be, I know, professional for four years. No, it is. But I say that my first Olympics, it was a goal from like, I was 18 when the Olympics came around. I was 17 when I qualified, but I won the youth in 14 then the youth to the 15 and the juniors to 16 and the seniors to 17. So th- that was like a stepping stone of four years to get the first Olympics. But after the Seoul Korea Olympics, Barcelona was, was 92. And then I say, you have to keep, you have to sort of keep winning. You, know I mean? you have to win, keep winning. Mm. And um, I actually lost the nationals when I was in 89. The, one of my teammates for 92, Paul Buttermer, he, he's the last Irish guy to, to beat me. And we all <laughs> He's a great. He's my great friend to this day. We, we still talk, but that was a wake up call for me then, and I knew then. 80, 1990, I won the one in the Commonwealth gold for for Northern Ireland, and then that, at the end of that year, I actually fought for Ireland in the World Cup in Bombay, India, and it was my first fight at bantamweight. I moved up from flyweight to bantamweight. I won the gold medal at flyweight in the, the Commonwealth. Moved up to bantamweight, and I fought four fights in a week, and and outdoors in Bombay. And when you lost, the se- I got the semifinals and there was no guaranteed bronze. When you lost the semifinals in the World Cup, you had to fight the other losing semifinalists for the one bronze. The Olympics had one gold, one silver, two bronze. But we only had, had to fight after losing to fight another guy for the, the bronze medal in the World Cup. And it was my hardest competition I was in, actually, because you had to fight. I, I won, won two fights, lost the third, and then won my fourth and got a bronze medal. And then... Um, that was my stepping stone towards that put me number that put me to number four in the world or something. And then going to the Olympics in ninety two, I was two year, like two years later. I was favorite I was favorite to win a bronze I going to the Olympics, at least favorite to win a bronze. Hmm. So people say I'm disappointed by winning the silver. I'm like, well I'm I'm sort of, but if I'm guaranteed to win a bronze at least, then at least if I get a silver I, I did better than the bronze. Yeah. Oh my God. You know? First of all, how many Irish people have Olympic medals in the first place? It's a, it's a small number. So no matter mm-hmm. if it's gold, silver or bronze, you're in this group, a small group of people who can say that they have done that. Yeah. Well, in the 92, I say Michael got her first gold medal ever from, from men. And, um, 1956 was the last time he got a silver medal. Jeez. So, you know, we hadn't, we got a couple of bronze in like 1980 and stuff, but. We a medicine comes that often for Ireland. Know what I mean, mm-hmm. they're coming. They're coming more now with the, well, the women. I bring more medals. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you they know, are. 
but the main, you know, we've got a, we've had a silver, we've had two silver since, and like a couple of bronzes as well with the guys. So we're doing better. But I say, you know, we're doing a lot better. We're doing better now because the women are involved in, in it as well. But and now they're talking about taking boxing away from the Olympics as well. It's weird. Yeah, as we're doing really well, they're like, let's take it away. No, I say ninety-two for us. Me and Michael Cruz at the time. Um, there was no funding. There was no like higher performance training or anything. It was just you had a day job. You might have a day job. You're working nine to five, and you go on the Irish team. And I was unemployed on on the dole. Didn't have a didn't have a penny. Nothing. Jeez. Going to the Olympics. Come back from the Olympics with a silver medal and was broke. You know, it was I didn't have a, a penny. I was I was going to go pro. I was waiting for the right offer, and. The truth was, when I, I was still signed on the door when I came back from the Olympics in 82. Oh, my God. And that's, that is, it's, I suppose it's like our GA players in one way, but also to go on the world level and, you know, come home with a silver medal and then have to go back into the dole office. Like, that's, that's a weird concept. Like, my bank account didn't get any bigger when I won the medal. It didn't, because I didn't, my bank account, I think I had 50 pounds in it. <laughs> oh, my God. No, it wasn't like I was, I came back to the Olympics and I was rich. I, I was unemployed still. I was, I was still signed on the dole office and and waiting for that offer to turn pro. And um, it took about five months for it to come along, but it came along. But apart from that, I say I wasn't going to stay amateur. I was done with the amateur game, mm. and um, I was at the ready. Just turned twenty two to turn professional. But everybody thinks I was rolling the money. And you know, we made a few appearances. Me and Michael made appearances, like mostly down south, like. You get 500, 500 pound here, 500 pound there. But I didn't make that much. Michael was making more because he was based down there and I was in Northern Ireland. And I got like one or two things in Northern Ireland and that was it. You know, say everybody knows the, the whole story about coming back with a medal and wanting to have a reception for me. <laughs> <laughs> but they finally did. And I say I kicked up a stink when they didn't invite Michael Cruz. There was a lot of politics going on at the time. And it's, it's unfortunate because when I... When I come back from, no, when I when I come back from the Olympics in '92 at the airport in Dublin, there was probably five thousand people at like two or three in the morning. Mm. And then the next day on the Canal Street, they had about a hundred thousand people, and we were on top of the bus, and they were celebrating me and Michael's medals. And then when I get to Belfast, there is no celebration. You know, it's it's, and to say they had a recession from at the, the city hall with the Lord Mayor, and um, but I found out right before that he. Michael wasn't invited. I was told something different before that. And then I did, everybody knows the story. I walked up to the Lord Mayor of Belfast and told him what I thought of him. And I was ready to leave the dinner in the city hall. Mm. And Pat McCrory, our team manager from the Olympics, um, he was there and he said, just do it for, do it for, do it for the boxing, do it for the boxing. I was walking out. I told, I told him what I thought of him. I, did. I really told the mayor what I thought of him, but what he thought about like politics today and about religion. And the guy actually, I'm not going to name his name, he, he actually lived around the corner from where I was from, Belfast. This is the Lord Mayor of Belfast. And I'm thinking, wow, this is so discriminating, you know what I mean? Mm. And, and, but the funny thing is, I'm not, I'm not crying, crying poor mouth or anything like that, they're crying about But Michael, Dublin people look after me. You know, I had the big reception. All nice things were done south. And then when I get to Belfast, you know, it was, it was different. Yeah, and that's what I'm, I'm proud of where I come from, and you know, I'm proud, a proud man. Say the people, 
in my neighborhood that had a party for me, which is a good thing. They had a party in my street and Highfield Estate in the, um, the suburbs of Shangle Road. But you're talking about you talk about the politicians of the city, and never had nothing. And even when I won the WBC World Championship, the first the first WBC belt in history, Katie Taylor's the second one to win the WBC mm. belt, the green and gold one. <laughs> um, they never they never even, they never even had a reception for me. To this day, I never got a reception. Never got one. And it's like I remember seeing all the other champions who've had champions along the way since then. They all were invited to the city hall and got receptions. So maybe, maybe I don't know. Like one, like one deep to it. But I remember last year actually the the mayor of Belfast. I think she was South African born or something. She seen one of my stories from way back. She seen actually a podcast like this, and I was talking like this, just like I'm talking to you. And she seen it and couldn't believe it. And she invited me in the next time I'm home for a reception. Oh. Like a, well, I thought that was nice because she was. You know, she wasn't born there, and it's weird. It's, it's funny. It's really it's a funny thing. But I say Northern Ireland and the politics, the, the troubles was a, a weird situation. But boxing crossed divide and never had a problem whatsoever. It's clear that they were just so afraid of anything that, without instead of making a stand and seeing that this boxing was, as you said, bringing two communities together and there was no trouble at it, they were just assuming that there was going to be a rough crowd or assuming that only one side of the divide was going to come or whatever like that. And it's just sad because how many people from Northern Ireland got a medal at the Olympics? So I'll say the last time we, the last ever medal from Northern Ireland from me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and say when I got, when I got my gold medal in the Commonwealth Games in 1990, the last time we got a gold medal before that was 1978 when Barry McGuigan, who was my hero, yeah, I got a gold medal in '78, so that was 12 years, you know, of a gap for the for that medal too. So I say, but it's, you know, I love I love Ireland, north and south. I love Northern Ireland. I love, I love my home city of Belfast, and I'm proud of where I come from. And say, no matter what politicians can try to do to you, they can never take anything away from you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I suppose in a way, like you got the people that mattered the most to you were the ones who treated the party, the ones the locals, the neighbours, they were the ones celebrating you rather than the politicians and maybe, you know, feck them. You like you're, you bet you had more more <laughs> fun there. Protestant Catholic to this day, you know, the real fans remember me forever. And um I've had people come to this gym here, come to Vegas is my home my home gym here, my home. And people come up from Dublin, from Belfast, come up here and have a spend the day watching my fighter train and getting pictures of the belts and stuff and you know, they'll always be like that. I'll always be that type of person who's really, you know, I'm approachable. Mm. And I'll say back home the same way. When I go back home, you know, I'm approachable and say, when I turn professional, I wanted to fight. Because when you're fighting for Northern Ireland, you're labeled, you're fighting for the Northern Ireland flag and you're fighting for the Irish flag. And I told my manager, I said, when I fight for, as a pro, I want to fight for everybody. I don't want any. And I'm going to wear green shorts and this, that. Everybody knows where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And they've supported me through the through my amateur days. And as a pro, Protestant Catholic came to my fights in Keynes Hall in Belfast, you know, down in Dublin and the, the O2 Arena and stuff like that. They always came to support me and there was never any hassle. And they say, no anthems were playing, nothing. And um, both the Protestant Catholic always supported me. And the, to this day, the fans always remember you too. 
30 years is a long time since an Olympic medal. <laughs> <laughs> we'll sign you back up. I'm sure you could still do it now. I've got the picture on the wall over here. It's the, it's the Olympics in, in 1992. And I, when people come in there and say that to my son on the wall, they're like, they're like, like you haven't changed much. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'd love if somebody said you looked as young as you did all those years. You'd be like, great, fantastic. So what were you going to do if, if the pro contract didn't come along? What were you going to do? Were you just going to give up box and get like a normal job? Well, the the Irish team were going to pay me, like start giving me like a monthly. They started giving me that year of like 91, start giving me some money every month. But it was it wasn't much. It was enough to get you a pro runners or something like that. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. Today the guys are getting like ninety grand a year or something. I'm like, what? Oh my god! And then um, after Olympics, they they wanted me to stay amateur, but I already told everybody I was turned pro. I already told people that um, the pro game is what I want to do, mm. and and they tried to keep me amateur, and I I was like, no, but I couldn't fight because my cheekbone was fractured in three places, and the semi semi final I busted in three places and busted a nerve right along here. And to this day, it's still tingling here. That's, what, 32 years ago? Oh, my God. 30, 30 years ago. But I had blood coming at the corner of my eye from the fight, but there was no cut. It was just coming from underneath my skin and coming to the corner of my eye. But I still fought the final with it, and I lost a close fight against Joel Casimiro, the Cuban, who actually lives in Las Vegas, and we're good friends. <laughs> <laughs> he became a world champion boxer as well as a pro. But I say I couldn't fight for like six months. So I, I couldn't even get hit in the face for like five months. So I kept training, kept training, waiting for the offers. And, and I, I, was, I thought I was going to stay in Belfast with, with Barney Eastwood. He's, he's passed away now. He, was, he always let me use the gym and, and the city center, professional gym where Brian, Brian Wigan trained there back in the day. Dave McCauley, world champion. It was Paul Hodginson, you know, Fidel Bassa, who fought McCauley. We're all training in that gym. Mm. And I was getting experienced by just sparring with them. And Barney Eastwood, I'm always thankful for him to, he always let me train there. My brother trained there too, but he let me train there for free. But I thought I was going to go with him. And then when I had when I sat down in front of him a couple of times and he made me offers that were just let's say that we weren't the offers that that were I would have had to work nine to five. Right. And be a professional. And say nobody knows what the offers are to this day. I put them on my book, I think. But everybody was was like saying to me, Oh, you should have stayed at home, you made this offer. I'm like, well, I just come back with an Olympic medal and I have to work what, work nine to five and try to be a professional fighter. You can't do that. You know, you have to go, if you want to go to a Premier League, you leave and go to the Premier League. You don't stay in your wee club team in, in Dublin or Belfast. Mm-hmm. If you're offered to go to the Premier League, where are you going to go? I'm going to say no, no, you're going to leave. So when I got, I got an offer to come to America in November of, of 92, my manager at the time, Matt Tinley, he actually came to Dublin. I think it was a Burlington Hotel. I was doing a, a dinner for, for the for the Irish team or whatever it was, and they said they he came over flew over from here. Barry McGuigan was with him, and then um, they were friends. And they sat me down and said, "We're going to pay this much. We're going to do this for you. We're going to do that." And we're like, me and my coach Harry Robinson were sitting there like, "Really? This is really happening?" Because the offer them is uh, I'm thinking, "Holy smoke! They're going to pay me this money." I'm like, "Wow!" But it was security as well. It was like. If you fought so many fights per year, say you were offered five fights a year, but you only fought two, you were paid for five. You know, when you were guaranteed to get that yearly wage or whatever. Yeah. And nobody's ever did that before. Nobody's ever did it in a contract. If you, if you get injured and be out for six months, you don't get paid. But I was going to get paid if I was injured. 
And fortunately enough, I wasn't the first year. I fought 11 fights the first year. I was busy. Jeez. But um, I, was, I was busy as a pro, 11 fights in the first year. But but say that after it was on the table and my whole life turned around. I was I was staying back home. I thought I was going to stay back home with Barney Eastwood, sign a contract, stay home and, and fight there. But then all of a sudden, I'm offered to come come to the America. And the icing on the cake was a guy called Eddie Futch, who's... He's on my wall over here. He's passed away now. He was, he was 82 years old at the time. But he trained um, back in the day. He trained Joe Frazier back in the day, Ken Norton, Leon Spinks, three guys who actually beat Muhammad Ali. And um, he, he was going to take me on. He watched me at the Olympics and said he would take me on. I'm like, I was, I knew who he was back then by reading magazines and stuff like that. But when I came here, he was training Riddick Bowe, who was a heavyweight champion of the world at the time. And Mike McCallum, he was three-time world champion from Jamaica, he was here as well. So I was I was in camp with Emmons from the get go, and just watching Emmons and learning from Emmons was was priceless. But with Eddie Fudge, it was like I couldn't believe that this guy was my coach. And and people people to this day always say to me, why why did you why did you leave home? I'm always like two words, Eddie Fudge, hmm. and they're like, oh yes, yeah. They all know right. Once you say them words, anybody in boxing would know Eddie Fudge if you look him up. You know, he trained 20 world champions, and I was a, I was the smallest world champion actually, <laughs> mostly heavyweights. But he was the reason he was the reason why I became world champion. He really was. I'm not just saying I had talent, but I didn't have enough talent to get me to the top. And he was the one that brought the talent out of me and made me world champion. But see, that got me away from from home, and um, that's the reason why I left. I never thought I would stay here, but I made my wife. My, she was my girlfriend at the time. She was 19, Cheryl. And um, we were coming for three years. And after three years, we were going back home. Because that point of your career, you're supposed to slow down a little bit. Mm. You might be fighting twice a year. But we loved it here in Vegas. You know, Vegas just like, sort of grew on us. I met a bunch of guys in 94 who were from Belfast. who lived around the corner from me, from Ardoin. <laughs> um, Catholic, Catholic guys, they've been here, they've been here like 40 years. And... We became the good friends, and to this day, we're, we're great friends. And that made my stay here a little bit easier as well, in a way. Yeah. Obviously, the contract you got was amazing and, you know, life-changing and, you know, career-changing everything. But as a young fella whose friends are all from the area and, you know, all your friends are going out or going to college or getting jobs and meeting, you know, going and spinning in cars, you know, things young lads do, was it hard for you to kind of leave that? Did you say college there? <laughs> well, yeah, college, yeah. Some people. Oh, sorry, from, from, uni. From, from, from the well, suburbs of the Shangle, let me think. It's like all the college. Mm. No, the college. My college was going to the gym. It was my college. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, I know what you mean. Not, not my friends. You know, had some had good jobs in the shipyard and stuff like that. But I say when I was telling them I was leaving because I was close to them. We had a, a bunch of us used to hang out high in the streets. We never really got into trouble that much, but we'd hang out together and. Have a bit of fun, and I just told them all I'm going to America. They're like, just looked at me like they were okay with it. No, I man, it was like I think they thought you're getting away from here. You know what I mean? Yeah. But as I say, I always go back home, and I always see them. But I didn't. I couldn't believe it. I was a homebird on the Irish team. Everybody knew me as a homebird. I couldn't wait when I got away to competition. I couldn't wait to get home again. And Belfast, where I came from. You know, I came from, I would say to people here, my coaches were actually in my neighborhood. Like, it's a ghetto. 
they call ghetto over here. It was a bad neighborhood. And my neighborhood was a ghetto. But you're always proud of where you come from and where you lived, you know what I mean? Mm. And to say, my whole life just turned around. I was within two weeks' notice, I was moving to America. And my girlfriend, my wife, was coming with me. And I was like, our whole life just turned upside down. But for Eddie Fudge, he would do anything. And that was the reason why I left and came to Las Vegas for him. And what about your brothers? The two that had been playing, had been, sorry, got you into boxing. What did they get into? Well, my, the one brother, my oldest brother who fought, he gave it up when he was like 16 and started partying and going to nightclubs. <laughs> I was only like 10 or something. Now, my other brother, Alan, he, he the mother, knows the oldest brother, Alan, he turned pro, got his attached retina. And then over there, they, you got to fix, but they take your license away from you. And um, so them two, I'd given it up more or less when I was, I was up to senior level and stuff like that. And um, but I just, I'm the youngest brother, you know what I mean? And I did work harder than them. I did work harder. I know I did because I just always worked hard, and I always avoided like going to the nightclubs and you know going out on a Saturday night and stuff. I was probably watching TV and going to bed at ten o'clock at night on Saturday night. And I say I I just sacrificed that to get to where I wanted to be. And to say, your first goal is the Olympics, which mm-hmm. I got to go to twice, which is unfortunate. And then the next goal is the World Championship as a pro. And I just, I sacrificed, I did live like a monk. I must, I did, I did, I did go to nightclubs once in a while, like once a year or something. Maybe had a, a drink once in a while, but never that much. And I say, I just sort of thought, I need to do this right now because when I'm older, I can do what I want, mm-hmm. but I need to do this right now to get where I want to go. And it sounds it sounds crazy at the time, but you have to be like that. As a as a as a boxer, you got to just live like a monk, really, mm-hmm. and sort of just early nights, train twice a day, just live like that every day, and and say might meet the right woman. And as I say, it took me a long time to meet the right woman. <laughs> but I met my wife Cheryl when she was sixteen, and I was nineteen, and and I just I was with, I was with girls before, and I just. Once they started saying to me, why are you going to the gym? That was me finished. Because I'm not, not that I was being selfish, but I just, that was my goal. They mm. say, when I was dating girls like 14, 15, 16, when they said to me, oh, why are you going to the gym? I'm like, I think we're done here. And I wasn't being nasty. I just, I just thought, you know, what's it going to be like if I get successful? Mm. They're like, oh, you need to come in here. My wife never did that once. And she was, I was going, she was 16 and 17 I was gone 20 weeks the first year I was with her next year was Olympic year I was gone 20 weeks of traveling the world and she was always there for me and never once said well why are you going away it was always she was she had my support the support behind my back and say I knew she was right one from the get go so I've been together almost 33 years ago Oh, wow. So it's going successfully then. (laughs) It's still still successful. No, she looks after me and I say, my daughter, Wynonna, she's fantastic. She was born in Las Vegas, real Las Vegas woman, 24 years old. And with so much, she got so much more talent than I'll ever have, believe me. She's a singer and stuff like that. And she's she's dedicated to what she does. And as I say, Las Vegas. Does she have um, an American accent or does she have a mixture of the Nordy accent and the American? 
No, when she was when she was growing up, her accent is like like our most few words here and there. And then she's watching TV all you watching TV all the time, all the cartoons, all American cartoons. So she's gonna pick up the accent. But I say when she she has a few words, she 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 tries to make she tries to do my accent. My accent my accent smoothed out a little bit. It's not as bad. But it wasn't like real deep belt off like I here talking like I here. Used to be like that. Used to be like I used to be like that. But when you talk to the Americans, you have to slow down and, and for them to understand you. So yeah. you sort of get used to that. And I say my daughter tried to do my accent sometimes. She's she's not bad at it. She said, What about you? What about you? <laughs> situation. <laughs> situation, the situation. That was funny. I would say, No, she's she's my daughter was say best thing that ever happened in my life, knowing. You know, your wed your wedding day is always your best. You have to say that. My wife's not here, no. You have to say your wed <laughs> your wedding day is always your best, of course. But my wife agrees. When your when your daughter when your kid's born or or a girl, it's it's unbelievable. You know, it's just it's a, a miracle in a way, I think it's a miracle and she's just a oh, blessing and, and it's the best thing. My belts don't mean nothing. They're nothing. Metal doesn't mean anything. My daughter was the best thing that ever happened. I mean, better. World championship. Well, He's the best thing by far ever happened in my life. No well, question about that. That is lovely. And she, any daughter wants to hear their dad say that. So that's beautiful for her to, you know, well, to know I've that. Said, I've said it right to her face. I mean, so she knows it's true. <laughs> Oh, it's something she thinks I'm stupid, so she does. <laughs> well, look, that would be normal of anyone and their parents. <laughs> I know, I know. You do some stuff with her, like on Instagram and TikTok and stuff, don't you? Well, that's like a bribery, I think. I have to. <laughs> well, I have to say, no, you'll do anything. If you've got a, do you have kids, though? No. No, if you have if you have a kid, you're going to do anything for your kid. You know, you'll do anything for your kid, you really would. So if they ask you to do this or do that, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Maybe. I might look stu- dumb or stupid, but I'm going to do it. Might have you That's dancing it. to like, you know, the weekend or something and doing your dips and your dives and you're like, okay, fine. Oh, my mo- dance moves aren't that great. Maybe in the ring they're okay, but not, not in the, <laughs> on the dance floor. <laughs> but so you'll do, I'll do anything for, for her, definitely. What was it um, like when you, you know, you went pro and then, you know, as you said, it's a short enough career and stuff. When it was coming to an end, were you a bit panicked? No, I think... It's like the media when you're you're fighting, you you're up and coming, and you're world champion, and then you defend your belt, and then all of a sudden the journalists are starting to write, "Oh, you're you're, you're done now," you're, and you're you're not done, but they try to put they try to put a seat in your mind at the yard then, and they say there's journalists who can do that to you, and then you think you're finished. But I say I got the fight for a lot of world championships and got the belt around my waist and got to travel the world and. Even though these journalists can criticize you, they can't take anything anything away from you. No. Say the, the Olympic medal and the world championship, they can never take it away from me. And say it's it's hard at the end of it, it's hard. And say I've got this gym now, I, I train people and train fighters, I train pros, amateurs, and just regular people. And I teach them all how to fight. And, you know, a lot of fighters end up stop fighting and then they go away from it and they, you never hear from them again. And then they, all of a sudden, you hear they're doing drugs or drinking, and they're they're dead. Mm. And I keep training every day, so it keeps my mind alert. And I say by training other people too, it keeps me keeps me going. But 
I'll always do that. I'll be involved in boxing. It's sometimes you want to walk away from it, but but I love it. You know what I mean? So it's hard to it's hard to walk away. But every time I walk away from it, I come straight back to it. <laughs> <laughs> if I can help a kid win a world championship, that'd be a, a great thing. I always think the one thing about boxing is. Um, you get the title and everyone's so delighted for you. And then within like four minutes, it's like um, defending the title. Who's the next person you're going to have to defend your title against this? You have to replay the person you've just beaten. And I'm like, it's just happened. <laughs> I know that's when I, I went to Japan. I had to go to Japan to fight for the championship. And I won. But my first, I was, I, mean, I told my promoter at the time, my, my first and second defense are going to be in Ireland. And I mean, my first defense was in Belfast. And that was that was three months after I won the belt, and then three months later, my second defense was in Dublin. And I made sure that I I wanted to make sure that I fought my first defense in Belfast and second in Dublin because that was that supported me all the years. Mm. And I couldn't do anything about the, the belt or the, the championship being fought in Japan because the world champion was from there, and we had to go to Japan. So I just made sure I, I wanted the people of Ireland to know that North and South that I wanted to show him the belt and defend it over there and I did and I defend the belt twice over there that's uh, re- like that's really good because a lot of times you know we see some of our biggest sports stars leave and it's kind of like they fe- you kind of feel like they've forgotten about you in a way yeah. and to come to come back and do that like obviously now the big talk is that Katie will you know play Croke Park yeah. but at the moment that's not set in stone and like it's been years since we've had a real boxing game in, in Ireland, like a ma- boxing match. So like anyone who's a fan here has to usually stay up till ridiculous o'clock or if there's a fight in the UK. No, I wanted to make sure I fought over there, let's say at least twice a year when I turned pro as well, which I did. But by, for me, defending my belt in Belfast the first time and Dublin the second time, I lost a lot of money. But it wasn't about the money then. It was about me showing the fans that I am the world champion. You know what I mean? And a lot of people, as you just said, there they'll they'll, do, they'll go for the money part instead, mm-hmm. and 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 say you're making decent money still, no matter what. But I think it was important for me to go to fight in Belfast and Dublin because I'm from Belfast, but I fought most of my amateur career in Dublin, and that's why I wanted to do that. And say any time I fought over there, it was always sold out. And with Kitty Taylor going to Croke Park next year, because if it happens, that'll be fantastic. No, she's. She's bringing the women's boxing to a different level. And she's a great person as well. Mm. And I love her, don't know I mean? She's a great person. It's it's mad to see how um, Katie kind of led the way, I suppose, for women. I wouldn't have known anything about women's boxing until Katie came along. Like, you know, you knew that, you know, as you mentioned, like yourself, Michael Cruz, Barry McGuigan, they were the big names you knew, even if you weren't a big boxing fan. And for years, it was only when Katie first was an amateur and then went pro and suddenly she's the world's greatest. And then people are starting to go, oh, wait, hold on a second. Now. What's happening here? Women's boxing is, and certainly it's, we're doing pretty well in it. No, women's boxing has been around for a long time. Like during the 90s here, I've had um, Laura Serrano, who's a two-time world champion Mexican girl who used to spar with me here back in the 90s. You know, Deidre Gogarty is an Irish fighter. She lived in Louisiana. She, You don't even hear about these people because, mm. but they were around the 90s. Christy Martin, you know, Leila Ali, they were all fighters over here, professional. But it wasn't it wasn't until the Olympics started for women that the because everybody thought Katie Taylor was a like a five time or six time world champion amateur, won Europeans, multi nations. I never knew who she was. 
And then when she got on 2012, the Olympic platform, is when women's boxing just was launched. Mm. And even over here now, the women's boxing is bigger as well. But I think Katie Taylor put that, that mark on there for everybody to, you know, women can fight. I and mean, I always knew they could fight because I sparred with them here. <laughs> but, but they weren't getting the attention. Yeah. And they, I always supported women's boxing, I'd say, through the 90s, right through the early 2000s. But nobody was given any any morning watching. You know, yeah. with Leila Ali, she was just the daughter of the, the legend. but And she made a lot of money and stuff, but that was like a quick couple of years and it was done. I say, but did you go already? Laura Serrano, Christy Martin, they were all great fighters, great pros, and not a lot of people know who they are. Was there, a, um, for like, I know you were sporting women's boxing, but amongst, I suppose, the boxing community on, on the men's side, do you think there was a bit of like, they're never going to make it, it's, you know, like attitude towards it? <laughs> well, well, I think other people were like that, but when I sparred with them here, I knew they could fight, you know, as I say, but you're probably right. Other other people probably think, oh, women mm. shouldn't be doing boxing. This and that. I was always saying, no, women should be boxing. And I always said before, women should be in the Olympics. And then all of a sudden, it took years. You know, I, I was in the Olympics 88, 92, there was no women, 96, you know, 2000, 2004, 2008. Then 2012 is the first time women get the good Olympics. And Katie Taylor gets a gold medal. Mm. <laughs> you know, and then so, we get Kelly last year getting the gold medal that, as well. Last year, that's, and she'll like go pro, she's probably, she's in her 30s, I think, isn't she? Yeah, no, she's, yes. it's funny when you mentioned about not making any money from it coming home. She, Kelly was the same. She did an interview where she basically said, like, you know, she's gone back to her normal job. She works as a cleaner in one of the hospitals here yeah. in Dublin. And she said, no, I'm not, like, she's not going pro. And she's like, I'd made no money. People think that I have a gold medal. So therefore, I'm loaded. And she's like, I work as a cleaner. So, and I'm going back to work. That'll oh, tell you. She comes to Las Vegas. <laughs> they love her over here. Yeah, well, stop, here. Ta- stop taking uh, them all over there. They'll never fight in Dublin then. No, but, but then you build them up here and you bring them back from the, the big fight over there. Okay. Kitty Taylor trained in America. You know that? Yeah. And I was hoping when she turned pro that I was going to train her. I, her dad contacted me one time about training her or whatever. But I know they had that big, big split. And now they're back together again. Yeah. But I would love to have got the hold of Katie Taylor and Trainer, but say she's doing them unbelievable anyway. <laughs> I know. Jesus, like, it doesn't seem like anyone's going to stop her. Whoever does, like, I think she'll just retire and go out in a high after oh, Cook Park. Got a the big fight next year. Cook Park's what she wants to do, you know what I mean? Big yeah. stadium. And um, she might retire after that. Yeah. You know, retire the. If she fights Serrano again, then it'll be the big fight in Croke Park. They need they need a big fight like that mm. to bring to Croke Park and to say if she does that and wins that fight, then she can make call her there. She did everything she can do, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, do you feel now looking back that you did everything that you wanted to do and you're like ticked off everything in your career? Yeah, well, I want to win an Olympic medal, any color, what you did. And I want to win a world championship. But, and then when you win a world championship, then you'd be greedy, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I, I, should have, I, should, I should have been a three-way world champion. I was, I was robbed. I was robbed in two championship fights. I know I was robbed, and there's nothing you can do about that. But I can't complain because I won the, the first time on the way. And but you just get a goal where you once you reach that goal, then we, you have to set other goals. Yeah. You say it's, but I say I'm a world champion. They can't take it away from me. And I say it's 
it's not too bad. <laughs> God, it's amazing. Like I couldn't be the world champion in lying down sleeping. So like, come on, how many are there? <laughs> no, but no, I say everything you do, I say 30 years, 30 years ago, this February, um, the next year will be, I've left 30 years ago. Wow. And I swear to God, it seemed, it seemed like yesterday. Jumping on a flight, coming flying to LA, and I had my pro debut three days later in, in LA, and it just seemed like yesterday. It all seemed to happen so quick, but a lot happened. A lot happened in between the thirty years, but it just seemed like it just went so quick. I was blaming my daughter because when she was born, the years just flew past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Suddenly it's like, oh my god, it's already her fifth birthday, and she's starting school. Know, but before that, when I was like the teenager, early twenties, the years were just dragging in. Mm. Once my daughter was born, the years just flew, and she was getting. Old, every six months getting older one year oh my first year the second year third oh I'm going to be a teenager soon I'm going to be 16 soon I'm going to be 21 soon and I should when she turned 21 she's going to go backwards but now she's 24 so oh my god <laughs> the years seem to fly in but there's a lot there's a lot happened in between but it just seemed like you know I'm 52 years old now so I feel like you know I feel old but I'm not old because my coach was 82 years old when I came here Obviously, you know? keeping you young is the training. Like that's obviously keeping. Oh, you- it does. I, I run. I run every morning. Still, I still go run. I get up every morning and I go run every morning. Then I'm in the gym here and I train with the guys, the girls, and then and I do a lot of work in the afternoon every day. I do that because I've always I've always did it since I was a mm-hmm. kid. And as I say I think it's good. It's good for your mind as well. There's a lot of mental health out there. And say I've I've read a lot of fighters and this and the other, but I. I was world champion in 96 and I had a rope in my hand ready to kill myself. So a lot of people don't. I, I, wrote, I wrote about it in my book. I touched on it, but I actually was going to kill myself. Jesus. Uh, I was world champion in my belt and just slipped in depression. Away. I had everything I needed. People think because you have everything that you're happy. But I had I had a rope in my hand in the living room. My wife, my wife called me at 2 o'clock in the morning ready to kill myself. And without her coming down on it, she sleeps she sleeps like a log. But that's why I waited till the middle of the night and I didn't I didn't plan on one day. Mm. This was this stretched down for like a year. People when people get depressed, you you're not depressed one day and kill yourself the next day. It's a long process of, you know, get depressed. Then you don't show you don't show it, then you don't talk to anybody about it. And then you you get to the point where you're like, I could do this. And then you get to the point where you can, you plan to do it, and then you get to the point where you want to do it, and that's when you get to the point where you're going to do it. It's the scariest time because you know what, you know you're going to do it. You've no fear. Yeah. And yeah. and that's what I. It's just when I look back, I've helped a lot of people since then because without my wife coming out that night, I wouldn't be here. And as I say, it was just a matter of I'm done. And I say I was a world champion. Had house, car, everything, money. I mean, nothing. You're not happy. I mean, see, there's a lot of mental health. Like even Tyson Fury's talked about mental health, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about 1996. They're talking about today. I'm talking about even back then. And I never get, I never get into depth without depth. But my book, I sort of touched it, let people realize that there is help. And as I say. I help people to this day, and I say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring the depth about it and explain 
where I was and what I was going to do. Because when people think about that and see it, they're like, oh, you were going to do it? <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of people cry for, a lot of people don't cry for help because they, they keep it built up. And you have to talk to people. You have to, you have to talk. You know, some people won't listen to you, but some people will listen to you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will feel in the same way that you are. I've got, why am I so, why do I feel depressed? There's nothing wrong with me. I have a car, I have a house, I have a wife, a kids, you know, whatever it is. You have these material things or you have these close relationships, but like it doesn't work like that. It's not that the only way you can be depressed is if you're single or the only way you can be depressed is if you're unemployed. Like, as you said, you were the heights of your career and you had your, you know, girlfriend slash wife. And like, do you, looking back now, do you, can you pinpoint what it was? Can you pinpoint like what it's, how it started? Yeah. Yeah. My, my promoter was, was screwing me over. And he, he screwed me out of a million dollars throughout my career. Jesus. And um, the guy was a rich guy before mm-hmm. he, I came here. And then he, he got over 30 million inheritance from his uncle. But I found out he had screwed me over. And I just sort of, you know, this is a person I put trust in to leave my country to come here. Mm-hmm. And and he, I, had, I had to put trust in somebody. I was 22 years old. My wife was 19. We didn't know nobody in the whole country. And we had to trust somebody. And, and I did trust him. I trust him too much. And... You know, you always told people I was, I was like a son to him. Well, I really was. <laughs> and son, you robbed him. I was paying up twenty five percent of my purses, but he was doing the the production side of stuff. And then I found out he was making three dollars to every one I was making as well, on top of everything else. So that's why I sort of slipped away in the depression. Thought, why am I doing this? You know, for him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? For I should have just talked to people first. I didn't. I should have talked, but I didn't. I just kept it all built up, built up, and then said my wife, you know. But there is some people you talk to, and you and you say it to them, they're like, "Oh, you're stupid. What are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. And when you say that to you, people just they'll drive you even further, further down. You just got to get somebody who's going to listen to you. Yeah, because the one person who says, "What? Why are you complaining? Or what's wrong with you?" Oh yeah, you you've got a, you've got this, you've got this. Yeah, you've got a car, you've got a, car, you've got a home, you've got a wife, everything. You you're not happy. Like, no. Yeah, like that that, that'll material. set you off worse. Yeah, that's material things. It doesn't bring you happiness. But as I say, you got to get the right people. Anybody out there, if anybody sees this here, but hmm. anybody can reach out to me anytime. I've, I've helped a lot of people, and I still do to this day. Help people talk. You know, just need to talk to me for you know, text me, talk to me, whatever, and. I'll, I'll talk to people because I know, I know where I've been there. I've been to the, the depths of the door where it's over. And without my wife coming out that day, I, was, I, was, I wouldn't be here. So God had a reason for him to be here. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll help people. And it doesn't matter if you have a $10 million in a bank or $100 billion or two pennies. You know, you can slip into depression. Completely. You know, so and as you said... We talk about it a lot more and, you know, men are opening up that bit more now. But 96, as you said, no one was talking. I didn't know what mental health was until maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago. And even at that, we knew a little bit. We don't know what we know now. In 10 years, we'll know know more. I didn't know depression. What was depression? Was 
I was 26 years old and say had car home living and but they just slipped away for like six months and I was still fighting it defending my belt in Dublin going through depression Jesus and it was right after that in April that was March April of, of 96 is when the curtain was coming down you know and it, when I think about that I, I thank God because mm. my daughter we told her about it when she was older and when we told her about it then she was like almost in tears on me. And she's like, Daddy, I wanted to have you here. I would never have known her going. I'm going to start that now. <laughs> but that that's something that people need to hear because you know what? There's someone who might be see- listening to this who's feeling the way you did and it hasn't sought any help and doesn't realise that if some it's- the right person comes along and steps in, you can have a life, you can have a family, you can have a career, you can yeah. be happy. No, you can uh, say... You can be happy with nothing in the bank. You can be happy with a million dollars in the bank. You can be, don't have to have all the stuff for this, that, and other. But if you feel like you're getting depressed, you need to talk to somebody. Mm. Doesn't have to be a psychiatrist. Doesn't have to be something like that. You can talk to your friend. You can talk to your your neighbor. You can talk to somebody who's going to listen to you. You know, you want to get somebody who listens. Otherwise, if you don't listen, then you're in trouble. Yeah. Um, and do you recognize that in other fighters now, like young lads or stuff coming into your gym? Can you recognize people kind of, you know, on that slope? Yeah, well, with fighting, with boxing, you have to be mentally 100% strong. And say, I was going through depression when I was fighting, but it's, it's, it's tough. But I've helped people. If they say to me, I'm feeling a little bit down, I say, well, what's going on? I just say that. I don't say, oh, you're stupid. Yeah. I say, Tell them what's going on in your head. You know, you need to get your head straight. For fights, you have to have your head straight anyway. Mm. But if you're getting a little bit down the dumps, or that could lead you to somewhere else you want to go to. And say, somebody can help you who's never been there before. And I've been to, the, I've been to, the, I say, I've been to that door, and they want to go back that door. No. The door was open for me, and I was going to do it. Yeah. That I wasn't. I was going to do it, and it was over, and that was it. I wouldn't be here. But the door, God sent an angel down in my life, and that was it. Really, I believe that. I believe that. People might think I'm stupid. No. But depression, I say, with Tyson Fury coming out, I'm glad he came out. You know, some people come out and say they've tried to kill themselves four or five times. When they say stuff like that, I don't believe that because you don't tell people you're going to do it. You do it. You know, oh, I'm going to do this week. You don't, it's like depression. It's like, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to do it. You're not going to tell people you're going to do it. You're just going to go and do it. It's over. Mm. Just, you got, unless you talk to somebody before it's done and dust it, it's over. And that's it. I can talk about it now. It's really, it makes me angry inside that I was going to do it to myself. Yeah. Because I wouldn't have seen my daughter. But that's what the push is at that point. Something gets in your head. Just do it. And you you get so you get so calm and so relaxed that you can do it. That's a, I say that's the scariest part there is because you're going to go through with it. Mm. And when I had a rope in my hand, that was that was it. And I knew the beam I was going to do it on in the living room, Jesus. which is that, yeah. See, I've never described like this to people, but when I sit down and talk like this, it's like reality kicks in and people realize maybe they can through it. Mm. And it's 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 tough. But you can get past it. 
And you're never going to get you're never going to get over it for the rest of your life. Anybody who goes through that, it's a day to day battle. Mm. You know that's why I've I've had to say slip ups. And um, I say I don't turn to, I don't drink or anything. I don't turn the alcohol covered up. I would say to my wife, and I felt a little bit, and she was like, "Okay, what's going on? That's all you need." And then you feel it's like it's somebody you can trust. You know what I mean? And they talk to that's somebody who's going to say, "Oh, you're, what are you talking about? You're stupid." I, when they say that, it's, it just drives you somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Jesus. You need that support there. And people are saying, "Oh, I don't want to bother people." People would prefer you bothered them. I would prefer if someone, my friend, yeah, doesn't bother me. You're going to bother me anytime. Tomorrow, but don't bother me. <laughs> yeah. I'm like bother me anytime. If that's the way you're feeling, ring me, text me. I stand the people time, anytime. Text me. Call me. Reach out. If you're feeling like that, you need to reach out right away. Yeah. Whoever you think is going to help, reach you out. You can't wait one day. No. Nope. Uh, next day, it's too late. And like, look at you now, you're, you know, I know you say it's a day-to-day battle, but you're, you you seem pretty happy in your life as you are now. Well, a, a friend of mine in California, he's a personal trainer, he does a little bit of fighting, that never really fires. He reached to me years ago. He was going to do the, he read my book and seen the little thing in it. And he said to me, can you call me like every month, maybe give me a text or to see if I'm okay. He went through it. And about, I think it was about four months ago, a friend of his partner at the gym that he worked with, I said, what's going on? He said, my partner killed himself. Killed himself. He tried to help his partner. His partner killed himself. I'm helping this guy. He's still alive, this guy, but his partner I never knew. Killed himself. It's crazy, isn't it? That was just like three months ago. Jesus, that's horrific. And it's, it's a burden to like try and help someone, but like you'd rather that burden, as we say, like I'd rather help try and be helping people. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a it's a burden. Of, you know, if people just help each other. It'd be, it'd be a lot easier for people with mental health. Yeah, people are good if you give them the chance. Really, they are. Like most people are good people. They are good people. I'm a good person. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now I definitely think so. So no, you have to prove me a wrong. Of, a lot of times you don't want to, you don't want to be medicated up, no man. No. I tell me pills I take is all homeopathic pills. They're all natural from the earth. It's not medicated. It's not prescribed stuff. It's all natural stuff. I would. You're living anything. the American life of. You're living that clean American life over there. No, the funny thing is, <laughs> my my doctor had put me on this. This was years ago. Medication that um, Robin Williams. Remember Robin Williams, the actor. Mm. He, killed, he killed himself yeah and he was the medication that he was on the medication the doctor gave me after two days it says on it you can kill yourself you jays your nuts I was ready to kill myself for two days like my wife said you're going off these he was on the same medication he killed himself and I was on the same stuff he was on Jesus it just reminds me of those ads when you were in America and you know every single ad is like side effects may include and then it's like that, death that you kill yourself you might think no so Anything I take is all homeopathic, like natural pills. I wouldn't take prescription because you're going you're to probably going to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, they obviously work for some people, but they don't work for everyone. Like some people, no, they do work, they do, some people they work for, but when they put that, you know, you may kill yourself on it. The, the yeah. side effects. Somebody's already did that in. Otherwise, they wouldn't put it on there. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, if it says that on it, I'm sorry. That like, how can the benefits outweigh? like the negatives there because like if that's an if that's a no. side effect I don't want to try it no I don't want to try it either because that's my wife always says the first thing you do got a side effects I'm like yes I do <laughs> well, 
what's the side effects on this homeopathic medicine? Oh, there is none. Because there's no side effects. It's all natural from the earth. That's what the Indians used to take back in the day. That's mm. all natural stuff. So why should I? Back in the day, the Indians, anything from the earth, they, 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 they healed each other. Mm. But now it's here. Take his prescription for the rest of your life. And it'll keep him maintained the whole life. It maintains your body. It doesn't fix you. It maintains you. It's like I did a I did a course, like a two year course on nutrition and stuff. And every time I go to a grocery store, I always check the labels on there for the sugar, the fiber, the the protein mm-hmm. that's in it. And my wife says, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Just checking." It. You know, this looks healthy, but it's not healthy. <laughs> no, I I don't eat meat, and all my friends, if I buy like fake, you know, the fake meat, like the Beyond Burgers or anything like that, my friends are like, "Eh, why are you eating fake meat? Because you're meant to be vegan or whatever." And I'm like, "Yes, but it doesn't mean that I don't get cravings, you know, for." The fake stuff. I know it's bad for me, but you're but not going to your life clean the whole time. My daughter is that she's she does gluten free everything, everything. And she's all it's weird. We're some weird stuff, but you know what? It's actually tastes okay, mm-hmm. and it, it changed her whole life. Her her health reasons and stuff. It'll help, it'll help her. Yeah. No, if you're if you, I don't really eat meat either. Not once in a while. I'm more of a, I'm a chickaholic. <laughs> I love chicken. <laughs> Oh, that was me before I gave up meat. I did, uh, red meat was fine and it was the chicken. And then I had a really bad curry, a chicken curry, and that's what sent me off away from Indian, it. Indian curry or, 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 or Chinese? Chinese. I love Chinese curry. I don't like Indian curry. I love Chinese curry. Don't, don't do that. I love Chinese. I love, I love um, chicken curry and fried rice. Oh, yeah. Well, it was basically something like that. I got a really dodgy one and that sent me off. So uh, if you're coming back to Ireland, I'll make sure you don't go to that place. <laughs> When I go, first thing we do, we'll go back there and get like curried fried rice with them. Well, right. If you're going to Dublin next time you're over, I'll send WhatsApp me and I'll send you the place to not go. It's just one place. So I, and, yeah. Well, and then you'll be fine. Well, someone definitely gets some. My daughter did, Aaron's got talent a couple of years ago. And then we were over there for like a week. Yeah. We had a curry. <laughs> 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 it's anyone who comes home an expat comes home it's like what's their local takeaway they're like chipper or curry it's always the way Chip, chips and curry see that's my box over here he's, he's, he doesn't know what I'm talking about <laughs> chips and curry chips and curry chips and gravy <laughs> yeah they're like what are you talking about and you're like oh it's so simple but so carbalicious I love it you can't get chips and curry or chips and gravy no they don't have it over there they've got everything else that's bad for you but not that no <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I've just realised I've kept you over an hour away and I'm so sorry I better let you go and go to work but no thank you so much for opening up to me that was incredible that was like that's life changing stuff you've said and I imagine anyone who hears it who's in that place you might get some messages afterwards no problem thank you I'll talk to you later yes and have a good day and chat to you soon there's an Irish weather there Oh, thanks. <laughs> bye. I have to say a huge thank you to Wayne for being so brave and so honest and so open in this episode. It's not easy to talk about mental health um, and it's not e- especially not easy if you're a man. We all know the statistics around the likes of suicide, etc. Um, in males. And I suppose when you're a celebrity and people, you know, look up to you, it can be very hard to speak out and it can be very hard to get taken seriously. And, you know, but Wayne was incredibly brave there and talking about exactly what he went through and and how grateful he is that he didn't go through with his plan. And now he has a really fulfilling life. He has a gorgeous wife and a gorgeous daughter. He's 
working with some of the biggest names in boxing you know he's Dana White over in his gym all the time you know these kind of things he's meeting incredible people he's living a great life but most importantly he's really happy with his family and as he said it can happen to anyone so please if someone does reach out to you to speak about how they're feeling about their mental health please do not brush it off please do not tell them that you know it could be worse or you know why would they be feeling bad because you could be the only person they open up to and then we all know how hard it is at the moment for everybody with cost of living and everything that's going on in people's lives and really just need to look after each other so if someone does reach out to you if you do not feel equipped maybe point them in the direction of somebody who will rather than brushing it off and of course if you after listening to this conversation need any help the Samaritans are there every single day 24 hours a day you can call on 116-123 and you know that's free obviously um you can text the uh, helpline for the HSC, which is 50808. So just text the word hello and any time of day or night and someone will get back to you. Um, you can call Pieta House on free phone 1-800-247-247. So think about that if you ever need to remember 1800-247-247. And if you don't feel like you want to speak to someone on the phone, but you want to write it down, you can email the Smartens at Joe jo at the at samaritans.ie joe at samaritans.ie obviously if you're a younger listener you can contact Chiline. their number is 1800 and they're there for anyone under 18 years of age um but apart from that i have to say it was really cool to catching up when hearing like what boxing was like what being an olympian was like you know the lack of money involved back then the lack of praise that was involved back then the lack of ceremony and ceremonial you know gratitude you know that he didn't get he never got his you know moment really to shine and it's incredible that you know someone could come home with a silver medal and you know with and not have their friend who got a gold medal be invited up um hopefully things are different now and but I have to say, what a hero. I think anyone, anyone who remembers Wayne will know what an absolute hero. He has done so much for, you know, Olympi- Olympics in this country. And he's a hero to so many young Olympians. And we know how many young boxers there are there representing Ireland. So Wayne w- would have been one of the first ones. And that's incredible. And if you want to find him, if you're over in um, America and you want to go to his gym, it's called the Pocket Rocket Gym and reach out to him on Twitter or Instagram if you've heard this episode do reach out to me as well I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, you can contact uh, the Tis Yourself podcast we are on Instagram and on Twitter and of course I am on both as well Nicola Barden on Twitter and Instagram send me a DM I'd love to hear from you do hit a little follow as well if you've enjoyed and we will have um, a female guest next week someone who's going to make us laugh and we have a couple of other great episodes lined up um, one from close to home and one from very very far away so great episodes coming up and I really 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 hope that you will stick with us and maybe share with a friend and send on to somebody who maybe you think would enjoy this episode I love you all have a great great weekend have a great week whenever you're listening to this and look after yourselves especially at this time of year look after your friends look after your family and most of all look after yourself Slung full.